Hello, everyone. Welcome to Genealogy Adventures. My name is Brian Sheffy. And I'm Donya Williams. How are you this wonderful Sunday morning, Sunday afternoon? Indeed. Um, welcome to the show, um, wherever you're watching. And thank you for sharing the next hour of your Sunday with us. So today is part three of our conversation about the wonderful and incredible women of the 6888 Battalion uh, who served in World War II in Europe. And we have two amazing guests today. Um, our first guest is retired Colonel Edna Cummings. She's a documentary producer. She's produced a wonderful documentary about the 6888. She's a US Army veteran, business consultant for both federal and commercial clients in the metropolitan DC area. She's also the first African-American female ROTC graduate from Appalachia State University. So that's an achievement all on its own. Should probably have a show about that. And she is instrumental in obtaining the long overdue recognition for the women of the 6888th Battalion. Our second guest is Janice Martin. She's the daughter of Indiana Hunt Martin, who is um, a member of the 6888. She's also a, a retired registered nurse. She helped to integrate the Buffalo General Hospital School of Nursing at, back in 1971. And when she graduated in 1975, her graduating class had the first African-Americans to graduate from that, that institution. And although she's retired, she's still active in nursing. She uh, does COVID-19 testing for athletics in the Big Ten Conference. So welcome to the show, both Edna and Janice. We're really looking forward to speaking with you. Thank you. Thank you. Same here. Thank you. <laughs> Speak up, ladies. We can't hear you a little bit. Right. <laughs> Glad to be here. Don't be shy. Don't be shy. Yes. 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 We're excited. We're, we're going to get this in, and we're just excited for you ladies to be here because we want to know more about them. We, we decided to give them the last three weeks of um, Women's History Month because they deserved it and their stories definitely needed to be told. We learned about them at the very beginning from our, one of our past guests who was who's actually doing something in Kansas for them. And then, and then we turned around our second week, we talked with Charity um, Adam Early's children. So we got to learn more about her. So now we wanna learn from Miss Martin about your mom, Indiana, and then also Miss Cummins to just give us information about the what what it is that you have in store for them. So I my first question is to Edna. Um, given that you come from a from an army background and you hold the hold the retired rank of retired retired colonel. Um, was it just the women's military history that really got you um, as a big champion uh, to get their service recognized? Was, was it just that or was there more to it for you than that? Yeah. It was far more, as you indicated, I did come from a military family, so I was familiar with the Women's Army Corps. However, I was not familiar with the impact of the African-American women who served in the Women's Army Corps. Because during World War II, there were more than 6,000 African-American women who served in the US and abroad uh, in the Women's Army Corps. We also had Army nurses, but on, in the media, you never see anything about Black women in the military during World War II. And so that was one thing that prompted me 
then reading the story of Charity Adams, her middle name was Edna. So that caught my attention, a black woman in the army named Edna, who had some of the challenges that I had. So I immediately connected with the story. So I just um, had a deeper purpose because she served in the 40s. I served 40 plus years later, and there was a lot of parallels in our stories. So that motivated me to bring this story in the service of the Black women in World War II to the forefront. And Donnie and I will definitely be digging into more about the, the background of the, the barriers that you've had, the challenges that you've had in terms of getting these, these women recognized. Um, and to Janice, my first question to you is, in conversations with your mom about her, her service, did she give any inkling about what these women's secret sauce was to be able to move 7 million pieces and parcels of mail and packages in such a short time frame? Wasn't it 17 million, like 17.5? 17.5 in, in three mm-hmm. months. In right. three months, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so, basically, mom never really talked too much about her service until recently, but there were moments that she would bring it up and she'd say, you know, if you would ask her, she would only say, uh, we had a job to get done and we did our job. And that's all that was, that's all we could do was do what we were told. So we did it. That's how she would put it. So I've got a follow up question to both of you because that seems to be a common thing. And I come from a military family. My, my father was career Navy and he didn't really talk about what he did. My siblings and I found out more about what he did in, in the, the Navy through his old papers that he that he kept um, from his service. And I'm getting a sense that this isn't the first time that I've heard that um, children of the, the women who served and even uh, Buffalo soldiers, descendants of Buffalo soldiers and men who served in the world wars. Is, as a people, are we just, is, I don't know if humble is the right word or whether we're just pragmatic and practical. I think about other people who talk about what their grandfather, what their parents did in the war, you know, dad did this, granddad did this, but I don't really get a sense that that black people really have, we have those stories, but we don't really talk about those stories. Hmm. Okay. Janice, you go. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I don't know, because it seems like when they were in the military, they weren't really recognized for what they had done. So they came home with that understanding to just continue life as it was. And I'm not sure if that's how they really felt, but they didn't seem a need to express how important their jobs were. Hmm. And I just feel that's, I, I, I don't really know why they chose not to discuss what they did in the military. So Janice, you and I were were talking once and um, you actually said that that was an overall statement that every time you heard it, you know, they would always say, we just had a job to do and we did it. And that was it. <laughs> so I, I thought it was, yeah, I thought it was something they were told they couldn't say because I started digging, trying to figure out where you, and I would even ask her, I said, were you told never to talk about something? She said, no, it was just a job and we did our job and came home. That was it. I said, but people think you did more than just a job. She said, the soldiers fighting and losing their lives. To me, that was more important. 
So on your end, Edna, how do you answer that? Is it something, I mean, did you come back home from something and didn't, like Brian said, his dad was like, it was just a job. Is that how you felt about it as well? Was it, is it just a job or was it something more? Well, it depends on the assignment because um, first of all, with the women of World War II, regardless of the race, I my research shows that there was such a stigma associated with being in the military during that time. So it was something that a lot of women did not even put on their resumes. So that's one reason. And then secondly, there is some humility associated with uh, being in the military. And a lot of veterans do not want to relive this experience with non-veterans. They talk about, uh, we call it sharing war stories with other veterans, but uh, sometimes it's too hard to explain to people who have not been in that similar environment. And you think that there is um, probably not that deep understanding that another veteran would have. So I just think it's situation dependent. And um, one uh, news outlet called the 6888, the quiet warriors. And there are a lot of quiet warriors out there. They've been through a lot, but unless someone else has shared their experience, they do not talk about it unless it's brought out or unless there's a reason because uh, sometimes it is like my father was in uh, Vietnam and a lot of things he will not talk about because it just triggers some emotions that uh, he does not want to experience again. And sometimes he was told that he could not talk about it. I know when the 6888 served at Fort Oberthorpe, they trained there two weeks before they went to Europe. That was a classified location. Their training was because they held that training in an environment wherein it was not accessible and they did not publicize the location for fear of it leaking out uh, to the Germans. And so there are you know, a lot of reasons, but a lot of it, I think, is humility and that uh, attitude of just being the quiet warrior. Wow. You, you know, Edna, you're right, because she never even told anybody she was going into the military. When she signed up, she never said a word. She just said she was going to visit her mother in New York. That was it. And wow. nobody knew she was in the military. Wow. <laughs> so she just went to say, oh, I'm going to see mom. And then they'll come back for two years or Because <laughs> it really wasn't ladylike. I mean, that's not something ladies did because you hear the stigma of women in non-traditional jobs. Yeah. So what does that mean? That means that you have the ability to do something uh, that no one expected you to do. So that being said, the military is one of those things. I mean, looking at the training videos and a lot of the uh, videos of all women in the military during that time, they were wearing skirts and marching and heels. Now, who does that? Compared, <laughs> but that is the the box that society put these ladies in. You know, if you're going to do this, doggone it, you got to do it in pantyhose and heels and a skirt. <laughs> now, there's some images of them in slacks, uh, but for the most part, I'm like, oh my God, they had to wear skirts and heels and pantyhose. <laughs> and, and you can't imagine that because that's not what you had to wear, right? <laughs> not all the time, yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, so I just have this visual. I'm thinking about all of these World War II photographs that I've seen. So you can have men in shorts and sometimes shirtless and in shorts, and that's fine. But women had to wear heels, pantyhose, and skirts. 
Yes, and you have some images of the women in slacks, but not a lot. And I noticed uh, working with some of the uh, outlets, the Afro News, for example, I looked through their archives, and if it hadn't been for the Black newspaper, we wouldn't have a lot of these stories because the stories of the African-Americans, male nor female, they just weren't told. So um, our views are very, I guess, narrowed and sanitized when it came to reporting on what the uh, Black soldiers did, and I include women in that category during World War II. Mm -hmm. And Janice, I'm curious, of the, the stories that your mom did share with you, I mean, what are some of the standout stories for you about, about her service in the 6888? Um, I guess the one story, uh, she says one day they were setting up for getting ready for inspection. And when she went to put her socks on, she only had one sock. And she could not go for inspection with one sock. So she had reported that one of her socks were missing. And all the person in charge told her was a good soldier is always prepared. And she said from that day forward, she was never without socks, plural. <laughs> <laughs> There's always going to be some backup, whether it's in her pocket or something. <laughs> she said she found socks somewhere. And I, I would ask her, well, what does that mean? She said, that's all I'm telling you is I never had, I never was without socks again. But Janice, tell the story about jumping in the trenches where she said they were told when they were in Europe. I'm gonna let you finish that story well, because she, it's kind of colorful. Well, you finish it because. <laughs> okay, Mom. here's the story. They were trained in Europe because it was a wartime environment. <laughs> the war wasn't over. So they had told everyone, you know, the 6888, here's some trenches. So the uh, bombs, incoming bombs or you get attacked, jump in these trenches. But these trenches, let's just say they were multi-purpose trenches. That's where um, a lot of other stuff. Waste, uh, body waste. Yeah, body waste, there you go. As a nurse, I knew you would help me find the words. <laughs> said, but she didn't use the term body waste. She said they were full, it was full of all kind of quote, Ooh. body waste. And there's no way I was going to jump in that trench. I just would have been dead. <laughs> so that's uh, something you don't think about women in the 40s in wartime situations. But they had, you know, places they were supposed to go because the war was still going on. You can hear the bombs around them. But that was something I'd never heard anybody mention, jumping in trenches that were also used for uh, body waste. So well, that leads me to another question because they were still trained as soldiers and they had to pull guns every now and then. Am I correct? No, the women were not armed. Okay, but they were trained for it in case. They were not armed, but they were trained to protect themselves by um, going into a you know environment. You know, they had to go through the regular training, crawling under barbed wire and running and jumping in ditches to. They call it covered and concealment, in other words, to hide from the enemy. Because when they were working, they were working in uh, what are called blackout conditions. The windows were blacked out so it would not be detected by the Germans. So when in, in Europe, you know, they could hear the bombs going off. So before they deployed or, or transferred to Europe, there was certain um, training 
that they had to go through how to wear a protective mask or a gas mask in case it was a gas attack. Um, so that, that's the type of military training they had. So, but the women were not armed and that was part of the frustration actually to protect themselves while they were in France, the commander had them to learn martial arts or jujitsu because she was concerned not only about being attacked, but more so from, uh, let's just say, curious onlookers, because none of the women could carry firearms. Mm. And here's a question to either of you or both of you. So when the men came home from World War II, we have the advent of the GI Bill that's helping them get, you know, with their education, it's helping them buy their homes. What were there for, for women in general coming back from World War II? They use the GI Bill for education. The GI Bill has two major components. One was for the housing. And you hear about a lot of discrimination from the housing because you have to have certain income qualifications to buy a house. But the women use the GI Bill as actually Winston-Salem State University. The first woman to attend Winston-Salem State University on the GI Bill was from the 6888, uh, Mrs. Barbara Johnson. Wow. Mm -hmm. So the women did use the GI Bill when they returned from uh, Europe. And what was their what was their kind of general reception like when they when they came back? Was it job well done? Thank you very much. Now you can go home, or was was there anything else going on for them? Nothing. My Just... mother says when she returned and they docked, they stood in line and got a receipt or monies to go home because she enlisted in New York City. They gave her a token. Mm. Wow. To take the subway home. That, that was the money to go home. Oh wow. See, and that, that's even more that's even more rough knowing that that was New York City, because I'm thinking of that famous photograph of the American sailor with the nurse. She's bent over, he's kissing her. It's you know the confetti in the air and this jubilation. And the it was women just got nothing. nothing. It was just nothing. Okay. I just find that interesting. Token? Oh, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> you flown a token? You have because she's a subway token, right? A subway token. Because, <laughs> because she had initially signed up in Buffalo, but because paper problems, she had to redo her papers in New York City. So they had her address as New York City. So they gave her a token to get to the house. See, I'm, I'm sensing that my co-host's mind just got blown by that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, she she went she to has... New York and did what she did. So technically, she ain't from New York. She's from somewhere nope. else. Right. And they gave her a token. Yeah. So I'm like, oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, and that's part of the reason why once I became involved in the project in 2018 um, with the monument, we just saw other opportunities to expand the story. The monument at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas is great, is wonderful, but that kind of launched the recognition for the 6888. We started digging deeper and just saw so many other opportunities to share their story. They had a parade in November, 2018. The only parade that the 6888 ever had was in 2018. Mm. Um, at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, when we dedicated the monument at Buffalo Soldier Park. Well, 
I'm gonna tell you right now, real quick, Brian. Let me say this. Um, Crystal Evans on our group, she says your mom is old. They owe her because that token was just. She was like a ten cent token. <laughs> so I'm not the only. <laughs> oh, she was. She was floored when they handed her that money. The token. Yes, she's <laughs> Crystal Evans said they owe her, and I'm. I'm I agree. I agree. Mm -hmm. Yeah. With that. <laughs> yeah, she. Uh... There are little things that she really never forgot that happened, and she saved every single little thing. Good um, for her. Yeah. She mm. had uh, she had to get she had to borrow money from the Red Cross for some situation, and it was a loan that she had to pay back. Wow. <laughs> it was fifty dollars. <laughs> okay, uh, she borrowed fifty dollars, and she had to pay that back. Yes. She has the receipt. <laughs> she still had the receipts, right? <laughs> over 80 years ago. <laughs> she never got over the Red Cross for doing that to her either. <laughs> and also the fact that coffee and stuff happened over there. You know, I'm going to share this with the Red Cross, right? You you understand that, Brian. This will be shared. <laughs> but it, it goes beyond that because the Red Cross, while the women were in Europe, tried to set mm -hmm. up separate recreational facilities for the Black Wax. And the commander, uh, Charity uh, Major Adams, said it's not going to happen. She turned the truck around. And I think you talked to Stanley and Judith earlier about mm -hmm. the strength of their mom. I mean, so mm -hmm. many times she stood up and said, over my dead body, it's not going to happen. We are not going to accept separate recreational facilities for these black wax. So um, she made sure that the women received, I will call it, uh, more than uh, fair treatment. She wanted to be equal or better. That was the standard. Oh, well, I'm, sure, I'm just letting you know right now, this is going to be shared on, on Red Cross. They're they going to see this. But, <laughs> but the Red Cross, what was interesting when Major Adams returned to the U.S., she was Lieutenant Colonel Adams, she was on the board of the Red Cross. Huh. So oh. it's just amazing <laughs> how they went full circle because yes. Major Adams, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Adams, she got out of the military because she didn't want an assignment to the Pentagon. I thought that was interesting because I worked at the Pentagon and she says, I'd rather be a civilian than to be in the Pentagon because I can do more outside of the military. And it was only one full colonel in the army at that time. She was Lieutenant Colonel. So she got out and became uh, a board member of the Red Cross, Dean of University and did so much for the community. So it just kind of came full circle from rejecting help from the Red Cross, what was in her in their mind help uh, to becoming a board member for the Red Cross. She did. Okay. So this is again is to, to either of you or to both of you. So to people who make the argument, military service for World War II, it was, you know, recognized everyone's service. Why do Black people need to have separate recognition? And why would Black women in particular, the, the 6888, need their own recognition? Everyone's been been recognized. Edna, you or me? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, from, from my standpoint, I look at it more at the strategic level. The 6888 uh, was the only African-American unit to serve in Europe during World War II. 
And not only did they clear the backlog of mail, they cleared it where nobody else could because it was a major report. The adjutant general, that's the person who's in charge of the mail for the military said that unless we get this mail through, troop morale is going to continue to plummet and we're not going to be able to win the war. D-Day did not end the war. So because of D-Day, the ongoing troop movement, uh, the mail was backlogged, two to three years of backlogged mail. And you have families at home in the United States who didn't know whether their loved one was a lot, you know, whether they were alive or dead. You had soldiers and servicemen, not only just army, but, you know, servicemen and Americans, over 7 million Americans in the European theory of operations hadn't received mail. And so you think now how hard it is for you not to look at your phone about you know, to get it, see if you got a text message or an email. And before then it was the regular mail. And in the military, you want food, clothing, shelter, your money and mail. And if that mail does not come through, that just undermines everything. And so it was a problem that the allied commanders thought they were gonna lose the war unless these soldiers and Americans got their mail. And so the 6888 was the only unit, the only postal unit. White women had tried to clear the mail backlog. You know, men had tried to clear the mail backlog. It did not happen until the 6888 under the command of Major Adams came in and says, all right, we're going to work. This was in Birmingham, England, where the biggest impact was made. 24-7 um, operations, three shifts, wherein they process about 65,000 pieces of mail per shift. That's 100,000, 195,000 pieces of mail per day for three months, which is a little over 17 million. Of course, you know, the workload fluctuated. So it's just not about black women going overseas sorting mail. It's about, they were the only ones who could do it. The only ones who got it done. Black, white, purple, yellow, green, race, gender, immaterial. They got it done, period. And I saw the impact of that in two places. And if we have time later in the presentation, I'll go into a little bit more detail. Senator Jerry Moran is the Senator from Kansas who introduced the Congressional Gold Medal. And at the ceremony where we dedicated the monument, Kansas is the home of the Buffalo Soldiers and um, the monument is in Buffalo Soldier Park. He says he never thought about it, but the 6888 kept his family together because his father was a World War II veteran and his mom hadn't heard from him. So just think if you are married, got a, you know kids, and you haven't heard from your spouse in three or four months, they're in the wartime situation. So it was hard on the families at home, hard on the servicemen. And we were also at an event at Fort Meyer, and Janice, I don't know if you remember this, uh, this is Twilight Tattoo. And this uh, veteran approached, this, uh, I think it was your mom and Miss Rudolph, and said, it's because of you I'm here, because of, my mom thought my dad was dead. And finally, she decided to hold on a little bit longer because she started getting mail. And when he came back from World War II, here I am. Wow. So, <laughs> <laughs> wow. I mean, that's a true story. I'm not making this up. And so, uh, 
it just kind of made me pause. I'm like, yeah, because you know, you think about during the day, how many times you check your email, or if before email, if you know, the audience can remember that with your parents going to the mailbox looking for that letter. Oh, please. Uh-huh. uh-huh. So if you don't, or just think about now looking for any type of mail, whether it's your check or a card. Um, you don't we need them now. That. We need them now because yes. the mail is <laughs> terrible. Right. right. So that's just to... a snapshot of why, you know, I'm just working so hard to get them there just do. Um, they got it done and nobody else could do it. And they yeah. need to be recognized mm-hmm. for it. That's the bottom line. And that's not even back then. I mean, I'm thinking I'd lived abroad for for over 30 years and mm-hmm. just getting birthday cards, Christmas cards, yeah. letters in the post, it just makes your day. It puts it puts a smile on your face. Right. So, so Brian, let now, me ask you a question. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I was gonna say is now a good time to go to the presentation. Sure. That's why that's why we love each other and then when we're just here. <laughs> we're just <Yeah>. here. <laughs> we're always on the same on the same wavelength. So I was gonna <laughs> ask you. Do you want, because we do have some questions on the, um, in the group. So should we do the presentation first and then yeah. the presentation? Sure. Yeah, let's do it. The, you know, I can go through it in about 10 minutes. I will not read each page, but you know, I'll just ask you to advance it as. Uh... All right. So I will share that with you. Just give me a second. This is supposed. Oh, where'd it go? Hmm. Let me find it. Hold up. Sorry. It was just there. There it is. Okay. Let's try that again. Here you are. Just go to the beginning, the uh, home screen. There you go. All right. All right. So yeah, this is just a quick overview of the six AAA Congressional Gold Medal. And Janice's mom, Ms. Hunt Martin, is actually in this iconic photo. Um, her picture is to the far right. Uh, so she's in this photo. And I'll show it to you later. Okay, next slide. Hit next. All right, uh, an overview. Here's some of the things I will talk about in about 10 minutes to tell you why the Congressional Gold Medal and this recognition is so important for the six AAA. Next. Okay. The Congressional Gold Medal has been awarded since the American Revolution to show the nation's appreciation for distinguished achievements and contributions. And these are some of the examples of previous Congressional Gold Medals. And when the six AAA received their Congressional Gold Medal, it would be a custom medal to show the six AAA service. This slide shows Tuskegee Airmen, the women Air Force service pilots, Moffa Port Marines, and Navajo Code Talkers. And we want you know a special medal like this for the six AAA. Next. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. So the Senate bill numbers S321. On six AAA Congressional Gold Medal. Here's Senator Jerry Moran I was telling you about. And what I like about this bill is bipartisan. Senator Moran is um, from Kansas and he attended the um, ceremony. And here are some of the veterans who attend the, gold, the uh, 
monument dedication. And this bill actually passed the Senate last year, but passed toward the end of Congress. He had about a week left in the session. So it had to be reintroduced this year. And right now we have 52 co-sponsors. We need 67 for the bill to pass the Senate. So we hopefully, we, we will get that uh, real soon here. Next. The House side, the bill is introduced by Representative Gwendolyn Moore. She's from Wisconsin and one of our veterans is from Wisconsin. And the bill number is HR 1012 that was reintroduced. We need two thirds of the House of Representatives member to co-sponsor the bill for it to pass. And right now we have about 72. So we have some work to do for the House of Representatives. Next. So this is synthesizes why the 6888 is so important. Uh, the 6888 prevailed where others failed. It was the only military unit that was able to clear the backlog and it seated performance standards. The Army said it would take six months, the 6888 did it in three months, so half the time uh, that they were expected. And it would be the only female military unit to receive the Congressional Gold Medal. The women air service pilots were not in the military. They didn't receive veteran status, status until 77. And the 6888 would be the only African-American Women's Army Corps unit to receive this honor. Okay, next. So in World War II, the only service who had women in the Army excuse me, in the military was the army. The other services had women supporting the military. They were volunteers and there were over 300,000 women, but the 6888 was the only group of the Women's Army Corps who served overseas. And some of these um, other women, we had the Japanese American women who served, you, a lot of People didn't know they called the Nisei women, didn't know that you had Japanese women who served. You had code girls. Code girls were cryptographers from predominantly white uh, colleges, but there are also some black cryptographers. And that was a very classified mission. They could not talk. And I located a name of one, Ethel Highwarden, just. And that is a fascinating story. So if you ever get a chance to read about black cryptographers in World War II who were female, you probably would not find them because they could not talk about their service. We had more than 600,000 uh, Rosie the Riveters who were black. Um, so there was a lot of black women who served the nation in World War II. Okay, mm. next slide. So this is just a brief summary of how the wax were created. I will not go over it in a lot of detail, but Dr. Mary McLeod Bethune and First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt launched the push or push to have black women serve overseas in World War II and black women serve in the US. And Charity Adams was the first black woman to become an, arm, to become an officer in the uh, U.S. Army. It was the Women's Army Auxiliary Corps at the time. So I owe my service to her because she uh, opened the door and paved the way. Next slide. Next. Yeah, there were limits on Black women. They had to be 10% of the military. So they dubbed themselves the 10 percenters. 6,000 Black women who served in World War II, the service was limited 
to 10% to match the uh, number of African-Americans in the U.S. at the time. Mm -hmm. next, next slide. Okay. Now, while the 6888 was abroad, in the United States, the Black women in the Army were having a hard time. A lot of them were beaten and imprisoned for refusing to do menial labor. In 1945, four black whacks went on strike at Fort Devens. They, rather, they accepted a court-martial rather than uh, discriminatory work assignments. And three black women were beaten for sitting in the white side of a Greyhound bus station. So these are the type of stories that I did not know happened until I started researching and working with the 6888 in terms of what black women went through in World War II that no one ever talked about. Next slide. Hmm. Okay, this, this shows where the Black women were stationed in World War II. Fort Oglethorpe, Georgia is where they uh, conducted overseas training. I'll talk a little bit about that next. Yeah, if you get a chance, go online and look at the 6th Cavalry Museum. They have a great display about the 6 Triple Eights called the Triple Victory of the 6 Triple Eight. I visited uh, Fort Oglethorpe uh, before COVID. Next. Okay, this just shows uh, where the 6888, you know, before they departed for Europe at Cap Shanks, uh, New York. Next. When they were going over to Europe, um, German U-boats chased them. So they were confronted with the wartime situation before they went to Europe. Okay, next. Okay, and this is showing some of the white women who tried to, uh, the white wax who tried to clear the mail backlog before the 6888 arrived. Okay. Seven million Americans in the uh, theater of operations in Europe. That includes civilians as well, Red Cross workers, politicians, civilians. Nobody was getting the mail. And the army thought it would take six months to process. And this is an example of what it looked like overseas. Mm -hmm. Rat and that's only one hanger. Yep. That's right. That's one hanger. Rat infested, rodents, you name it. You know, the male. That's why I'm a punk. I'm going to tell you now. Because <laughs> <laughs> okay. the, the one day rat for me would have been it. I'd have been wiping my hands. That's it. I'm out. Yeah. Okay. Next. Well, it's more than rats. You probably had some other critters in there. I'm as most well. definitely. I'm out. I'm out. Okay. <laughs> Next. Yeah. So this is um, a special delivery newsletter from uh, Miss Indiana Hunt Martin, Janice's mom. And it just talks about the great job that the 6888 did. And this special delivery was a whack newspaper, not just for uh, black wax, but for all the wax. Everyone knew the 6888 did better than anyone else had in clearing that mail. Cause like you said, you probably weren't the only one. That's why the job didn't get done. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> <okay>. <laughs> <Next>. <laughs> I'll just leave it at that. Okay, yeah. next. <laughs> and for the veterans out there, here's the chain of command. And this one veteran, uh, Lieutenant Griffin is a hundred years old. She retired as a major from the Air Force. When she came back from Europe, uh, she joined the Air Force. She says she went to recruiter and it says, no, enough of the army, you know, come over to the Air Force. So she was able to retire. Okay, next. Uh, Major uh, Adams, she talked a lot about her with her children. So I will not uh, 
go into this in a lot of detail, but she was the valedictorian of her high school and was in grad school when she joined the 6888. But what I like about her, she made Lieutenant Colonel in four years. It took me 18 years to wow. make Lieutenant Colonel. So I was talking to a, a, one of my friends who wrote a book about World War II women. She said that was incredible. A lot of women didn't get that rank that fast. All right, next. Well, I wanted to let you know that we kind of found out that there's a possibility that they're related to, to me and Brian. Oh, well, incredible. Yeah. yeah. So this is, you know, example of what life was like in Birmingham, England. They formed their own entertainment groups. Sports teams were very successful. They even opened up like a uh, soda bar or a recreational um, place. Okay, next. Uh, three women uh, buried in Normandy. There are only four women buried in Normandy American Cemetery. Three are from the 6888. Three got killed in a Jeep, a Jeep accident. This is a famous photo when they marched in the Joan of Arc Parade in Rouen, France. They were not allowed to carry weapons and the commander taught them jujitsu. Mm. Okay. Next. The recognition, recognition 75 years later, you hear me talk about the monument. So I want you to see this picture. You can go online and look up 6888 monument. The only unit accommodation award they received, they received it in 2019. Um, this is a meritorious unit accommodation. And then there's a documentary that I helped produce about the 6888. The 6888 also has a blue plaque in Birmingham, England, where they serve. So that's another recognition we helped achieve. And that's the US ambassador uh, to uh, the United Kingdom at the time, Robert Johnson, who dedicated the blue plaque and right now there are seven veterans known to be alive. We lost one actually Saturday morning. No. Um, so the note here says an average of 245 World War II veterans die every day. So that's another reason why I'm really pushing to get this Congressional Gold Medal awarded. Okay, uh, next. Yeah, that's just some pictures from when we were in France and okay, next. This is the veteran of who marched across the stage at Winston-Salem State University. She was the first female to attend Winston-Salem State on the GI Bill. And when she graduated from Winston-Salem State, her principal would not let her attend her graduation. So 70 years later, she marched across the stage. So that was remarkable. Next. Coach John Thompson, we have a documentary and he is in the documentary, his cousin, was in the 6888 and he talks about how his mom says, hey, you can do something with your life. And so the 6888 motivated the first African-American to win the NCAA championship, Coach John Thompson. Yes, okay, he next. Okay. okay, now this is Miss Indiana Hunt Martin. I heard uh, Janet. Yes. Said, That's my mom. <laughs> so that is her iconic photo. Uh, she didn't know she was even in this photo. Janice, you can chime in until somebody told her that they saw her picture in the encyclopedia. Uh huh. That was how she found out we were getting those acne free books from the store. And <laughs> someone told her about the uh, encyclopedia. So she had to get her encyclopedia, and there she was. Yeah. So that's so an this, event. Is, this picture right here is in mm -hmm. is in the encyclopedia. Yes, it's everywhere. That's the iconic photo you get to see almost everywhere. 
But it's so sad because things like the encyclopedia is not even used anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, everything is always online. So our children, they miss these types of things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's so sad. Okay, next. So how you can help for the Congressional Gold Medal, write your senators, write your members of Congress and ask them to co-sponsor these two bills, S321, HR 1012. I'll leave this presentation with you and you can share it if you like, because it has the information. And in organizations, you can write the bill sponsors and tell them that your organization supports the 6888 Congressional Gold Medal. Okay, next. All right, and this is one of the co-producers, Elizabeth Helm Frazier. And it's just uh, a friend of mine wrote this book, uh, The Girls Who Stepped Out of Line. And she included the 6888 because she saw the work that I was doing with the 6888. And she said, they stepped out of line. They didn't follow the rules. Major Adams turned trucks around who tried to give separate facilities for black wax. She said, over my dead body, but the general uh, said, hey, we want to inspect your troops. And she says, they're not available. And so she's, she stood up for her women and stepped out of line. Okay, next. Okay, this is just a summary next. All right. And so it's the references and media, a lot of books. And if you want to follow us on social media, you can go to that last slide there where it shows the... Uh, yeah, that's my Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook about the 6888. Yeah, I just want to kind of show you some of the, the graphics, the images to kind of bring the story together to say a picture's worth a thousand words so you can understand why I'm so passionate and committed to making sure that they receive their long overdue recognition. Well, yeah. that was awesome. Um, that was awesome. Brian, you got something to say? Uh, just, I believe, I believe that there's some questions from the audience. Yes. So um, A.E. Barlow, some of the things you answered, like um, how many were still alive to this day, and you said it's seven and you just lost one. But there was one um, question from A.E. Barlow. They said, do you think the women serve due to patriotic duty or out of survival to support their family? All of the above. Both. (laughs) Wow. Wow. Mm -hmm. Because that's what mom said. She joined because she needed three square meals. And, wow. Tell her what and, she was doing before she joined. Where was she working? Tell yes, that story. Please, please. <laughs> yeah. And you yes. <laughs> when she graduated from Niagara Falls High School in 1940, she couldn't find work. So the only job she could come up with was picking peaches on a peach fact farm. But shortly after, when the war started, um, they cut down all the peach trees and turned it into a TNT factory. And it wasn't until recently I kept asking her about this TNT factory. And she said, oh, yeah, we worked there. But I really didn't do much because all I was supposed to do was clean the bathroom. But the bathroom was never dirty because nobody ever came out to use the bathroom. So I started asking questions. I said, what do you mean nobody used the bathroom? She said, nobody ever came out. We never hardly saw anybody. So when I start looking up the TNT factory, Evidently, it was a military insulation. They had blocked it off. And she said, oh, yeah, they bring us in on the bus and take us out. We had to go through security and all of this. I said, what kind of place is this? A TNT factory? She said, I don't know what they made in the back. 
Well, come to find out there's possibility that there might be something to do with the Manhattan Project that was going on there. And because we were right on the water where all the power was, so, and they were splitting atoms. And to this day, um, let's see, in 2019, it was an article in the Niagara Falls paper saying that that area is probably the largest radioactive dump site in the United States mm -hmm. because all the radioactive material from the Manhattan Project, the atom bombs, is all placed there. They're trying to get rid of all of that stuff now. They don't know where they're going to send it, but they need to get it out. So when I told her, I said, Ma, you know, you may have been there when they were trying to do some parts of the Manhattan Project. She said, well, all I know is I was up front and I knew nothing what was going on because we never saw anybody. Mm. I said, whoa, what kind of work was this? So it seems to be, and when you ask questions of people who were born and living around that time, we did a lot of what they call um, civil defense training in Niagara Falls. <laughs> <laughs> wow. We had to learn civil defense and no one really knew why. One of my cousins, Sherry, told me that they were told that Niagara Falls may have been on the Germans' hit zone because oh. of what was happening there. Wow. <laughs> wow. She has those receipts too, by the way. <laughs> yes. <laughs> she made 40 cents an hour. <laughs> And when she got the job cleaning the bathrooms, it was 50 cents an hour. And she had to sign a non-disclosure agreement uh, yes. not to talk about where she was working. So, <laughs> For 50 cents an hour. Okay. Yep. But that's so, why she had to join because she said she needed three square meals a day. Yep, that's fair enough. That's yeah. fair enough. So in terms of the U.S. Congressional Gold Medal, are there, are there still any kind of roadblocks or barriers to, to achieving that for them? No, the only roadblocks and barriers, I think, is education throughout Congress. Uh, Senator Moran's office is doing a great job in obtaining co-sponsors. We need 67. We have 52 uh, co-sponsors since the bill has been released. And on the House side, they're doing a great job as well. I'm in constant contact. So I think it's just a matter of time, but they're competing legislative priorities right now. There's a lot going on in our nation and it's not opposition, it's education and just a time to get the legislators to add their names to the bill, but I believe it would happen. And so with programs like this, that's part of the education and outreach to bring this to their attention. So no one is saying no. Everyone agrees. It's bipartisan. Both parties agree, which is great. Yeah. Um, Given the situation. Yeah. Right. So I think that's something six triple eight, you know, bringing people together again. So that's fantastic. So um, Hope, Hope, what is her last name? Godish, Godish. Mm -hmm. She says, as a retired postal employee, they make me feel honored. We have a letter my mom wrote to the army asking why they weren't receiving any mail from her brother in World War II. Oh, wow. Oh, my goodness. That's incredible. And now yeah. you know why. Yeah. <laughs> and now, you know, now she knows why. This is, yes. yeah. Uh -huh. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Save, save the envelope. <laughs> right? Please it's, it's worth something. <laughs> yeah. Tell her, take a picture and send it to you. We'd like to take a look at it. Yeah. Okay. Well, yes. if she's not listening, I'll definitely, um, if she's not still on, I'll definitely send her a message. Um, 
Brian, did you have another question? There's one here. I think uh, we yeah. have room for one more. You can take that one. Okay, Janice Gilliard says, does Colonel Cummings have family in the Marion or Florence County area of South Carolina? You knew it was coming. <laughs> <laughs> Probably, but what's interesting, I'm a Cummings Cummings. I'm real lazy because my maiden name is Cummings. There was a guy around the corner. Uh, his last name was Cummings. So, you know, it, it worked out. So it could be from either one of us. Uh, he's deceased now, but our Cummings came from, uh, one group came from Augusta, Georgia, and another group came from Ohio, I believe. So, yeah, there's quite a few. Is that Augusta one that, that I'm, I think? I think um, Augusta Cummings. Yeah, I think it's <laughs> Augusta. <laughs> well, Ladies, I really want to thank you for being here. Um, we're coming at the five minute break, five minutes left. And you guys have just been so eye opening. This was just um, an awesome show. You have a lot of comments stating how much they love this and that they're going to write to their congressman. So we will definitely be putting that information in the comments later. Um, but I just want to thank both of you for just searching me out, Miss Cummins, first and foremost, and then, you know, Miss Hunt, or Miss Martin, for just stepping in and just telling us about your mom. She seems like she was such a wonderful woman. Um, if there's anything else we can do to help, please let us know. Thank you. I just want the word to get out about them. Um, yes. It's such a they were, they were so invisible. It's it's so unfair because we never learned about the women in the military when we were in school. Right. Nothing. No. Right. Right. Miss Hope said that she will locate the letter as soon as she can. And thank you for the information. Appreciate everything. Yes. Thank you. So, Brian, you want to tell them about what's going on in the next month? <laughs> Nothing. Right. Nothing much. <laughs> well, for those of you who are our regular audience knows that um we take the month of April off, so we're going to be on hiatus, but you can still watch. We'll be um doing repeats of some of our most talked about um, most watched shows. But on the 2nd of May, we have African-Americans of the, of the California Gold Rush with Susan D. Anderson. Um, so that'll be the, the first kind of live show when we get back. And that's going to be a really cool show because I yeah. know Americans involved in the gold rush um, who weren't enslaved. Um, we know the slaves were taken there. So definitely, definitely looking forward to finding out more about that. Yes. So, um, yeah, we are definitely in that well-deserved break time. <laughs> We've been moving and moving and moving. Since what October? We no wow. yeah, no no break. So we're we're gonna take this break. We're gonna um do this month break, but you will still see our shows. So again, thank you, Miss Martin and Miss Cummings. Um, if you want to stay on for a minute, you can. Uh, otherwise, I'm Donya. Thank you, Anne. I'm Brian, and again, thank you for sharing this hour with us. Um, wherever you are. Thank you, Frank.